thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. We had an emergency at Oshkosh, refueling over the lake. Pressure in the nozzle got out of balance and it cracked a small line that went to the nozzle. Tanker guy kept saying, a lot of something coming out of the left nozzle was fuel. If we'd lit the afterburner, I'm sure bad things would have happened. When you think of giants in Air Force aviation, you might recall names like Chuck Yeager, Bob Hoover, maybe even Robin Olds or John Boyd. But do you know the name Rogers E. Smith? Well, you should because he is a former Royal Canadian Air Force pilot who then spent many years in the Air National Guard, retiring as a lieutenant colonel. He then flew for NASA for a number of years, flying the X-29, X-31, F-15, SR-71. And most importantly, today, he is my guest here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Raj, welcome to the show. Yeah, Roger's fine, and it's a pleasure to be here. But it is Rogers with an S. It is. It's my grandmother's surname, so I have okay. two last names. <laughs> Rogers right. Smith. That's why the E helps. Yeah, All my right. guard buddies would say, what is your real name? Is it Rogers Myth or Roger ah. Smith? <laughs> so it's Rogers, All right. but Roger's fine. Well, what about Chuck Yeager and Robin Olds and Bob Hoover and all these guys? Is, are you okay with me throwing your name in with that group? Well, I doubt that I'm uh, right up with them, but they're names that I know, and uh, one that I flew with, that's Chuck Yeager, a flight later on in his time. He came to the supersonic flight, uh, the sonic boom at every Air Force day at Edwards. And so we invited him at the 50th anniversary of supersonic flight to talk at NASA, and how I got him to come was promising my ride in the front seat in an F-18. Really? So wow. we did that. Exciting. Great pilot. Oh, good. Well, I imagine you have tons of stories. That's why I'm so glad yeah. we finally made this work. Turns out we only live less than a mile apart. No, that's uh, amazing. So yes. I drove over to pick you up to come out here, but I could have walked because we're just down the street. When you're in town, I know you have other places oh, we'll talk about. But. Enjoy well, it. I'm really looking forward to this. We met through uh, our mutual friend, uh, Billy Flynn. And so I told him last night we would be discussing uh, your career and SR-71 and whatever comes to mind. So he sends his regards. You probably keep in better touch with him than I do. I do. And he <laughs> he came to as a Canadian exchange to the test pilot school oh. first at Edwards. That's how we met. All right. And then he he did ultimately fly. He flew the HARV, the thrust vectoring F-18. That's he right. flew with us. Yeah. We got to fly the thrust vectoring F-16 as a result of the cooperation. Wow. He was uh, squadron commander of the same squadron I was in in the Canadian Air Force, 441 Squadron. Fantastic. So I know him well. Good. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the beginning, Raj. What got you or who got you interested in aviation in the first place? I mean, a lot of kids, right, stare up at the sky and look at airplanes and think that's amazing. I want to do that. Some want to be firemen or whatever else. But aviation bites a lot of kids. And how did it for you? Well, I had an uncle. I grew up and was born in western Canada in a place called Dawson Creek, way up in the north. Uh, my father joined the Air Force in the Second World War and was shipped off to England as an armorer. 
And so my mother and I came to Toronto in Canada, and I lived right next door to uh, my aunt, and my aunt's husband was my uncle, and he was, at that time, flying in England as training people in beam flying. But he was, in my life, my hero, and he flew airplanes. I wanted to fly airplanes ever since, and I wanted to be an engineer. I wanted to... um, understand the technical side of it and be a pilot, ultimately a test pilot. So I, that's what, what it came from. And when I first flew in the Canadian Air Force in training, the very first airplane I flew was a Harvard, we called them, T-6. And I'd never been on another airplane ever before. <laughs> so people say, how did you ever get the bug? Well, it's my uncle. He was my hero. And uh, You said very, something I smiled and nodded at, but I'm not sure I understood what you said. Did you say beam flying? Yeah, that's how they, uh, in Europe, in uh, bombing, how they got so they could do all-weather bombing and so on. They sent beams over the targets or intersecting beams, and they had to learn how to read the equipment and fly the beams. My goodness. So he flew an Anson with a twin-engine trainer in those days, teaching people how to fly the beam. He was a pilot in the Canadian Air Force. Well, that's what's great about having a podcast is I can learn something every single episode, just like every flight, right? You're always learning something. Well, as long as you think that way, you will. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, true. Let's talk about your stint in the Royal Canadian Air Force. Maybe if there was any challenge getting in, I know at least in my life, getting in the Navy wasn't so easy and getting through flight school, but what was that like and what did you end up flying? So for me, uh, growing up as I did in the center of Toronto, which was in a, I would say, a working-class area. It was safe enough, but you you had to know your way around the streets. So I went to school, and both public school and high school, almost 100% of my friends were Jewish. The dominant was a Jewish population in that area in Toronto. And one of the things for me, to be competitive at school, they believed in working hard at school. I had to work twice as hard to keep up with Mm -hmm. them. And uh, I didn't think I was particularly smart, but I outworked everybody. And that's what gave me the incentive, but it gave me the marks in the background when I graduated from high school. In Ontario, there's a grade 13 uh, still in high school. So I had very good marks in that. I applied and was accepted in engineering physics, which is the honor degree in engineering. And I also applied to the Air Force because my family was not capable of sending me and paying for university. So I got into what's equivalent to ROTC. It's called ROTP uh, plan. They accepted me, and I was accepted at Royal Military College in Kingston, but I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer. So they didn't have that course at that time. That's where Billy went. They allowed me to go to the University of Toronto. So they paid my tuition. They paid me uh, $75 a month, I think. (laughs) all the books and everything. So that's how I got in the Air Force. But at that time, during the summers, you finish university, we went to pilot training. After a few years, they stopped that. But it was great for me because I went off to, uh, in Ontario and Centralia, flying T-6s every summer. And then at the final graduation, I went to the west to Gimli, near Winnipeg, to get my wings on T-33s. I was a very good ball player, especially fast-pitch softball. So I was a shortstop on the station team. And when it came time to university, then offered me a fellowship to come back and get my master's. So I went to the commander on the base because I knew him because he knew me because I played on the station team. 
And I got an interview with him, and I said, this is, I've been offered this. He said, you you got to do that. Picked up the phone, called Ottawa and said, I have this cadet here. I was still a cadet. So I got nine months off without pay, but I got nine months to go to Toronto and uh, get that. And I came back and finished up my T-33 training. But because I knew all the people on the base, when I came back, they said, what do you want to fly? What do you want to get? There were only two things you could do. One was a interceptor, which I didn't like, a clunk, it was called, CF-100, or F-86s. So I got F-86s. Fantastic. And I went to training in uh, F-86s, then I went to France. Flew F-86s for two and a half years over there. So all we did was air-to-air fight every day. Oh. Uh, <laughs> That's fun, we, but it's hard on your neck. Yeah, it's hard on my back. Somebody took an x-ray of my back recently and said, I don't have back problems, but they said, you must have pulled a lot of Gs. <laughs> How so do you not have back problems? That's Probably. true. Yeah. So, How many hours did you end up with in the F-86? Oh, about 600, something okay. like that, yeah. That's where I, well, I learned to fly as a fighter pilot. Yeah. And I learned a lot of the lessons that you learn, you know, how to be aggressive and when to be patient, that's tough. <laughs> it's a tough yeah. thing to find the happy medium there. Sure. And so I learned a lot. I learned how to be a good wingman, for example. I spent some time getting lectured when we go off on deployments in other countries and somebody get behind us. And in no uncertain terms, as a wingman, I learned that it will never happen again uh-huh. or else. So. <laughs> You'll hear about it. But the most difficult thing I ever had was qualifying as a four-ship lead. If you climb out, and we had uh, Mark VI was the best airplane in Europe at that time. It had the most power and so on, and it was had slats that worked. And so it was very maneuverable. But if you're uh, leading a four-ship and you see the cons, we always climbed out to 45,000 feet straight wow. out with tanks. You'd see them coming with the con, and you go, it's up to you now <laughs> to plan. say three do this or whatever, and <laughs> right. you think, couldn't we stop this just for... A minute, well, I think. No, you can't stop. It's a thousand knots, your (laughs) closure. And so I'd have some of the veterans that weren't university graduates had a bit of a chip on their shoulder, and they'd say to me, we're a little surprised you're not making better progress as a four-ship lead. I said, why is that? It's the hardest thing I've ever tried to do. He said, well, with all this education you have, it should be. I said, this has nothing to do with it. (laughs) So that's a, a tough world that happens and jumping ahead a little bit in the latest movie, Maverick, they capture the air-to-air scene extremely well, how things happen, especially in close, so fast that you can't believe it. If it's in too close, you're not going to get out of there. Well, you were, as I understand, in the Royal Canadian Air Force, roughly between Korea and Vietnam, and then uh, you went over to, was it the National Research Council for a bit? It is. It's okay. called the National Aeronautical Establishment. Okay. And so... Make it a short story. When I came back from Europe, I met the deputy of the Central Experimental Improving Establishment, the test establishment in the Canadian Air Force, headquartered in Ottawa. He came over and asked me what I was going to do when we're disbanding the F-86. And I said, I guess I'm being posted to be a telecom officer. And he said, that's crazy with your background. I'm changing that. So when I finally reported at CP... He had gone, and I didn't realize there was a conflict between the two of them. And this now commander called me in and said, basically, if you're a good boy and work hard for three years or so, we might send you to Empire Test Pilot School. And I'm going, three years or so? And I still had flying privileges there. I, but So then one of my mentors, one of my idols a couple of years ahead of me in the Air Force was 
now the chief pilot over at NAE, which was taking over its own flying and getting into variable stability helicopters, which they still are world leaders in variable stability helicopters. So he called me and said, why don't you come over and work for us? And given uh, my recent talk with the commander, I said, excellent, I'll do that. And I did it. I literally walked across the street. And it was a good move for me because I was a pilot engineer there where I had responsibilities on both sides. But before you had gone to any kind of test pilot school? Correct. And And I never did go to a test pilot school. No, but I taught. I was an instructor at all three schools in the United States. (laughs) We had, with Cornell Air Lab, jumping ahead a bit, they invented variable stability airplanes in the early days of fly-by-wire. So they had a modified T-33, but they had two B-26s that were used for training. They were the greatest training tool ever in a test pilot school because you could change the characteristics. You want to see an unstable airplane? In those days, it was analog. You had all the sensors. You could feedback angle of attack and make the airplane that he's flying. You're watching him, in this case, side by side, but you have a button that you can press at any moment, and you're always attached to the main controls. So he could land the airplane, and every new airplane in the United States, every new fighter for years, was always simulated in the MT-33, the Variable Stability T-33, beforehand. F-18, I did the first. John Paget was the Navy guy that first flew the F-18. He and I spent two weeks flying together at Pax River before the first flight. And the same thing with the F-16. So that was the perfect place for me to want to be a test pilot and be a little more involved in the engineering side of things. So you became effectively a test pilot without actually ever going to a formal test pilot school? Right. Oh, wow. Is CalSpan also where you flew the X-22, I think it's called? Yes. Kind of looked like a 50-year-ago version of what you see now in these Avatar movies with the tilt Um, rotor things uh, running around? It was built. Two of them were built by um, Bell in Niagara Falls. One crashed on their own, but one was designed to be variable stability, a system in it. And ultimately, it was CalSpan. The Navy put it at CalSpan. So we operated as a variable stability airplane and did all the checkouts. So it was four J85 engines and four rotating props. So it had uh, 11 gearboxes. It's crazy to think of even (laughs) trying to fly it. But you have to remember, in those days, we were working for the Navy, and we did a program for them where we designed and flew with two Marine pilots from Pax River, descending from 1,500 feet, a descending, decelerating to the hover, IFR, simulated IFR. The ducks were automatically moved according to the profile. But uh, that was a long time ago, and those were the kinds of things we did. Were the Marines thinking, like, taking troops ashore? Was the Navy thinking ship-to-ship type stuff? Yeah, it was all the early days of what, you know, you see V-22s struggled because the Marines are persistent that they got that through a very difficult test program. In fact, I was watching one today. Very distinctive noise. Yeah. If you saw it on Coronado, it may have been the uh, CMV. 22. Could be. We've had uh, conversations about that one on this show. All right, so what happens in around 1970 when you decide to roll south of the border there and go talk to the Air National Guard folks? And your mother was an American citizen, right? So you were already... That really happened out of Canada, going to the National Guard, because we were 
at Canada in Ottawa, we were, had variable stability airplanes, helicopters. So we had some association with NASA Langley on the East Coast, which was mainly helicopters. Working with them on joint programs, then they asked me if I'd like to come down and work in NASA. It's like being asked if you want to go to the big leagues, you know. So I went to the various authorities, tried to get a green card. I applied for a green card to work. It was difficult. But when they looked at the green card application, had my mother was born in Minnesota, they said, we want to hear more about that. Well, ultimately, after some paperwork, I was established that she was a citizen. She moved to Canada when she was six years old, but she was still a citizen when I was born. So they said, I'm a citizen, as a U.S. citizen, as at birth. And the Canadians said, yeah, you're not deciding anything. You were just born, so it didn't affect that. <laughs> I then went to Langley for a year, moved down there, and then I got offered a job in Buffalo, New York, which suited my personal life as well. But while I was at Langley is when I got in the Marine Corps. One of the pilots that I worked with was a Marine in the reserves. So now I move from Langley to uh, CalSpan, what was called Cornell Aeronautical Laboratory at mm -hmm. that time. And that's where the same thing happened again. There was They were looking for pilots at the Air National Guard at Niagara Falls, so I went up and interviewed. But now I was already in the Marine Corps Reserve. So I transferred from the Marine Corps Reserve to the United States Air Force, but in the Air National Guard. So and, Royal Canadian Air Force to the Marine Corps to the right. Air National Guard, which is, can we call it just Air Force? All right. Well, it is a part of the Air yeah. Force It's when it's, it can be activated any time. So I flew there 24 years. 24 years. Yeah, yeah. I retired as a lieutenant colonel. Right. I was okay. a group commander when I retired. Wow. And I was F-16 squadron commander before that. And what all did you fly while you were there? I thought I read T-33 or maybe that was well, earlier. Well, I started with a T-33 because they said... They were still flying F-100, so I got a couple of flights in F-100. And, of course, winter was coming anyway, so they didn't want to do a checkout during the winter. <laughs> Couldn't do that. Right. Couldn't accomplish that. Yeah. So um, during that winter, they switched to 101s, F-Voodoos. So now I checked out in the Voodoo, and I flew uh, the Voodoo for the better part of 10 years. Wow. And then I flew F-4Cs and then F-4Ds and then ultimately F-16s. We got the interceptor version of the F-16. Wow. And the first 12 years of that, I was working in Buffalo. And then the last half, I worked in Edwards. My boss, Tom McMurtry, who has passed away now, was honored by the man that took all the pictures for Maverick because when Tom retired from NASA, he flew for Clay Lacey, photo business. And K2 is the man's name that runs that company, still does all the photo work in Hollywood. He put... Tom's picture up. said, this man taught me how to run tasks and small teams. And he was a great man, not just because he hired me, but he, uh, <laughs> they were all marvelous mentors because they had no egos, but they were done great things. I mean, sure. I sat at Neil Armstrong's desk. Wow. He was previously in that same office. So, so hold on, though. So for the 24 years you were at the Buffalo Air National Guard or Niagara Falls, right. uh, you were able to double dip or do something else besides? Was it a, like a part-time thing? or No, I worked at Cornell Aerolab as a regular job, mm -hmm. and I did weekends and okay. out, et cetera at the Guard, but I also held alert overnight at oh, the wow. Guard because we had an alert commitment. So I would go to work at 5 o'clock. I'd start alert and get off at 8 o'clock in the morning. For 12 years, I did that, and then it 
the reason I started talking about NASA was the man that hired me, Tom McMurtry, was now the chief pilot. So he said, we want you to stay in the guard. So I said, well, that's in Niagara Falls. We'll figure that out. So he would often come to me and say, do we have a contract right now with Colonel Aerolab? And I uh-huh. s- first I said, no, I don't think we do. Are you sure? So I would occasionally go on a guard weekend and have get an airplane to go cross country. But not always. But mm-hmm. I, I learned how to sleep on airplanes. Yeah. So I had cooperation. Not when you're piloting them. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I had help at both ends okay. that wanted me to do that. So I'd come to the guard. I'd literally fly overnight, go to Chicago. I'd sleep all the time. Hmm. And then I'd go to the guard in the morning. I'd fly twice that day. And when I left, I would fly twice and then go and pick 5 o'clock flight back to L.A. <laughs> I did that for 12 years. So. <laughs> Were you married? Yes, it's still <laughs> at the end of it, too. <laughs> still at the end, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. That's good. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Wow. And, and both all those stops along the way taught me a lot of lessons. I'll um, bet. And the reason I got the job at NASA was because of the guard flying at Edwards. It's because I had, you know, a high-speed time now. My logbook looked good. Yeah. So that allowed me to get the job. And when I, I was chief pilot at Calspan, Cornell Air Lab at the time, I told my buddies at the Guard, I'm going to take this job at Edwards. And they said, are you crazy? You're going to be Blue 4 out there, the new guy. I said, I don't care. That's my dream. You get back to the beginning. The dream of any test pilot is to be at Edwards doing testing with you know all that 20,000 square miles to fly in and uh, sunshine most of the time. Lots of wind, but but nobody yep. decided, hold on, this guy's never been through test pilot school. I mean, you no. were essentially just kind no, of No, because I had learned or? it at, at, okay. in Canada at the National Aeronautical Establishment. I had learned testing in the variable stability airplanes and running my own projects and flying them and safety pilot. And then I had, I had learned a lot elsewhere. So yeah. my experience then counted. And now, where I've worked the last 10 years in the world of UAVs, testing at Grey Butte, for mm-hmm. working for a small company, for doing the, all the testing for the MQ-9, for the Air Force, under the auspices of, of Edwards. So they now have inserted, because they came up with something, you have to be a test pilot graduate in order to <laughs> fulfill the slot for test pilots. So then they said, or be 10 yeah. years a member of Society of Experimental Test Pilots. Well, I have been... 50-plus years, a <laughs> member of that. So I was allowed to be designated a test pilot. Wow. So. That is amazing. Edwards in the 80s and 90s, that must have been pretty fun, impressive. I don't know. There's it a lot was, of interesting things and pictures on the flight line. No, it was a, a great opportunity and made possible by the people that were there, like Tom McMurtry and uh, Bill Dana, who both passed on. But when, when I was introduced to the office. I stood in the doorway with Tom McMurtry and he pointed over to this desk and said, Bill Dana, who flew the last flight in the X-15, is, was sitting there at the other desk that were butted together. <laughs> and it turns out the empty desk that I was going to have was Neil Armstrong's desk when he worked there. He worked in the same office. Uh-huh. So that's the kind of people I was introduced to. I say it in every talk that I give, what Bill Dana's advice to myself and um, another test pilot that came a year later, Ed Schneider, he said, I'm not going to give you a lot of advice here. I'll give you just one piece of advice that you're working here. 
Always take your job seriously. Never take yourself seriously. Meaning, control your ego. And that's the way he conducted himself and all of them. And so they're pretty serious about doing the job right. If you didn't do it right, you're going to hear about it. But if you took yourself seriously, they'd fix that in a hurry. That was my luck, following my dream, to work with people, mentors like that. And so I could combine the two, more the test flying and the test piloting at Edwards, a little bit of engineering, you know, so... You mentioned Top Gun Maverick earlier, and the movie begins after the little carrier scene, ostensibly with a test piloting type scene, although I think it's supposed to be China Lake, but very similar. And it has sort of a, dare I say, cavalier, of course, he's Maverick, right, approach to, oh, well, we'll just go Mach 10, right? Hollywood doesn't always get it right, but in the 80s and 90s, was it just, let's take an airplane and go see what it can do, or is it very much? No, no, no. It was very disciplined, and that's why you take your job seriously. I didn't realize how important it was until later in life that I was in an environment, too, where I could raise my hand and ask a question or point out a problem at any time, anywhere, not be sort of, you just sit down and be quiet here. Mm-hmm. We've got to do this. Mm-hmm. So I, I did have somebody when I got to be a flight ops talking to headquarters, NASA, and it, this guy was asking me about some schedule. Why did we put so many weeks in it or whatever? And I said to him, well, that's because, you know, we're doing flight research and we don't know all the answers. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing research. (laughs) So he said, yeah, well, I've heard all that stuff before, but can't you tell me next year how many discoveries you're going to make? And you go, I don't think you understand that flight research is a discovery process. That's why we're doing it. But they don't. So that's why it's so important, the bottom line to me, at any time I get the opportunity, is to be able to communicate. And you need to learn as a tester, not just a test pilot or or anyone, to be able to speak up properly, not in a cavalier fashion, and not have your head chopped off. Because the initial reaction with the people that tend to run the money is get rid of this guy because he's hurting the schedule. Well... Another great test pilot, I put these takeaways in my talk. If you think safety is expensive, try an accident. That's the trade-off. Anyway, that's my theme of the moment. Sure. (laughs) But historically, it was not cavalier. But it it was, you know, we had a squash court for the pilots. We had a a great job. Mm -hmm. They wanted you to be proficient. I mean, they would talk to me and say, hey, you need to fly more. You know, fly a little bit more because that's a safety issue. You want to be proficient, not just current. So that was a great opportunity, greater than I anticipated at the time or felt at the time. But later on, I realized what a marvelous opportunity it was. I had a boss once tell me he thought I was flying too much. Uh, that, yeah, wasn't, well. that wasn't fun because we were on deployment, and I'll leave it at that. But I don't think I've ever had a boss tell me I need to fly more. Raj, can you help me with a memory I'm not sure is true or not? I remember going to an air show at China Lake in the 80s, and I swore I saw the F-20 flying. And I thought I remember hearing that Chuck Yeager was flying it. Would that be possible? Not likely that Chuck Yeager was flying the it. The F-20? But it's possible the F-20 was flying. But. Right, okay. And then I think I remember going to an Edwards show Later, and I want to say maybe it was the 40th anniversary of 
the supersonic first flight. So that would have been late 80s. And you had already said something about Chuck yeah. doing that. Would, would, would he have flown like an F-15 over Edward yes. show up high? And- he traditionally flew after he retired. He would open the show in the back seat or in the front seat okay. as they chose, but with a, in a two-seater breaking the sound barrier. Well, I'm kind of disappointed, actually, to hear the first part because I'm writing my memoirs right now because people want to know my story from this podcast. And I put in there that it was Jaeger flying the F-20 and then later on this other thing. So I'll either have to let the story be more fun than the, the facts or I'll have to go back and change uh, it. He might anyway. have told you he was. But I, don't, <laughs> I, I, hey, I was probably 12 years old. So, <laughs> yeah. But I do remember going out to Edwards and I walked away with like these little one-pager pictures of this airplane that looked almost like an F-5 but with the wings going the wrong direction. There was a picture of a 747 with a space shuttle on top. I mean, gosh, like I said earlier, I think that was just seemed to me like the heyday of really amazing things happening out there. But maybe that was the 40s and 50s. I don't know. There were amazing things happening on those demonstrators you just talked about. Mm -hmm. X-29 and the X-31 all flew out of NASA. They didn't fly the whole flight, but the majority of all the test flying was done at NASA. But it was a joint Navy, Air Force, whatever, German, mm-hmm. in the case of the X-31. And then the SR came back. It had been there for like 10 years. It was kind of a, it was a, a YF-12, actually, but they flew it looking at aerodynamic heating and the beginnings of digital fly-by-wire. Eventually, the SR was converted to digital, the flight control system, but they were clever enough not to mess with it. They virtually duplicated it, didn't go and have to retest things too much. So it improved the range by about 7% because mm-hmm. they could control the inlets very much more accurately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many came back? Because you sent me a PowerPoint presentation that I was able to watch before this uh, discussion today, and it's got embedded videos, and I see you flying, which is fun, but it was the one with like the little piggyback That's, yeah. canopy on top we, of the We plane. got, now when I was there, we got three airplanes. Wow. We got two A models and a B model. That's when the Air Force retired the SR the first time in the 91. SAC was running that, you know, that they Strategic had, Air Command? They wanted money for other projects, I guess, but okay. they retired it, but then they brought it back and they actually reconstituted the debt at Edwards. So we got three airplanes. But the B model, when the Defense Department agreed to give three to NASA, the B model was in pieces in its big inspections that happened, I don't know, every 10 years or whatever, at Palmdale. So then I actually saw the memo written by Cheney directing them to get the the B model back together and flying to deliver to NASA. But that's the B model. The B model was cockpit that you could fly from in the back, but the canopy was what sat above. They had to put a additional canopy that with the spacesuit helmet on you could fit in there you'd <laughs> look out but if there was an on start which occasionally happened mm-hmm. you'd actually bang your head against the, wow. the wall what was it like when it seemed that this aircraft was coming back and you would have a chance to fly it i mean i have to think of course you've had some amazing experiences by this point but was that a pinch me moment or oh, was sure. it just okay it was a <laughs> an unexpected moment yeah and of course i was assigned two pilots to each project. So the Steve Eshmael was, had been there a while, long, a lot longer than I had, and myself were assigned as the SR pilots. That was a real plum in the office. 
for me, and uh, I certainly appreciated that. Yeah. And the same man that hired me was the one making those decisions. So yeah, it was a big deal. We had a chance, we, the people that were going to fly, to go the simulator that was at Beale. And Rod Dykeman was the squadron commander at that time at Beale. They were starting to wind down now. Well, they, he had now. He worked for American Airlines. He had left when they disbanded the SR and joined American. And so anyway, he, though, his last thing in the Air Force, went to the Binghamton, I think it was, in New York to accept the modified simulator. The simulator was ah. brought up to date, and uh, it was a really an excellent simulator with visual and small motion, oh. separated cockpits in the back seat, or you could fly just with an instructor behind you. And he was there and met us, and then he ultimately was working for American. When we got the B model, when we were ready to start flying, he wrote NASA and volunteered. He said, I'll take time off from American three weeks, <laughs> and I'll come and, yeah. and check out Steve, the first guy. And he did that, and he annotated every page of the Dash 1 with hand notes. This is really important. Forget about this. And the Dash matter. 1 is the manual. The manual. I'm right. sorry. The yeah, flight right. manual. Yeah. And he did all that. He flew. A, I didn't fly with him. He flew with Steve and checked him out. And then I made the first flight my first flight with Steve Ishmael, uh, which we had a, a non-start. Right on the first at, flight? On the first flight. Oh, gosh. It scared the crap out of us. Raj, when, I don't know if this is an easy uh, way to quantify, but let's say at some point in your day at, at work, you say, okay, I need to start studying to learn to fly the SRS-71. So if you imagine you start the clock there, how long does it take before you actually get into an SRS-71 and go fly? I, I think a month. Like a month. We, yeah, we, wow. we had a simulator and, okay. and so on. So yeah. you could study the systems, learn the procedures, start up and shut down in emergencies, yeah, yeah. get in the simulator a whole bunch, and a month later you could go fly. Yeah, maybe two months. I wow. don't know. Yeah, a month, month yeah. to two months. Wow. Not long. But of course, you're not a brand new pilot. <laughs> no. <laughs> but they made sure that you were ready. Right. You know, they, but they didn't send you to class exactly the same as you might in a, a new guy. Right. Yeah. Wow. And that, so how many hours or flights or what? I, I flew eight years, but we didn't fly a, a lot. I, I flew 150 hours roughly. In the SR-71? In that time, okay. yeah. So I, we also, when the Air Force reactivated the program at Edwards, we, myself, by this time, Steve Ishmael had left that flying the SR, and Ed Schneider took over, and I was the prime pilot. And so then we work with the Air Force, reconstituted the program, but they had no instructors in uh, 94, 95 time period. So they came and anointed you. You're an instructor pilot. I was in a, wow. both, we were official instructor pilots for the Air Force. So the first guy I flew with had 900 hours, but he hadn't flown for like eight years. Okay. So, and I keep asking him, what'd you just say? Because I take notes. I was taking <laughs> notes. So we had a, a good relationship. They, f yeah. they then flew the B model. They then got an A model. Right. The, the second A model that we had, they started flying. I mean, all these aircraft, where were they in, in all that time? In some sort of level 1,000, we, I think you call it, preservation somewhere? Or? Yeah, we had the two A models sitting in our ramp, but we flew the A model and the B model. Right. Regularly, But when the Air Force was getting back into it, were they going to bring some out of... We had a crew that were proficient at maintenance on the SR. Okay. We were cleared to fly it 
then, and mm-hmm. we flew it to Palmdale, and they re-inspected the airplane okay. thoroughly and then turned it back to the Air Force. Uh, the Likely we flew it back yeah. and landed it, and they took it over. Yeah. And NASA's role in this, was it also partly for, I think you had said you did some research, was it heating? They did a lot of research for the, uh, the there was quite a lot of, for several years, uh, idea to take a vehicle, take it off, and fly it to space. And then it sort of impractical to, you could have thought about it beforehand, that the amount of fuel you have to carry and the size you have to. So that was part of the doing data flights for that. We did some oddball data flights for people carrying, simulating a satellite going by because our going at Mach 3.2 across, you know, Phoenix, it's like a satellite going by. So Mm -hmm. we checked out some systems like that. And then the laser was a new type of rocket engine that had never been flown. If you look at pictures of space planes and see them, the the exhaust looks like a rectangle. Okay. Uh It's got slices. Each one of those slices could be a laser, a rocket engine with its... The thing about a laser was it only had one side of the nozzle. The other side was the air at the Mach number you're at itself compensating. You're saying the word laser. Are we thinking like a no-kidding light laser? No, like it's, I, I'm sorry. That's an acronym. Okay. It's Linear Aerospike Rocket Engine. Uh, okay. Sorry. No, that's all right. And we flew. We tried to fly for a couple of several years. We had Lockheed Skunk Works make a 1,500-pound canoe, if you like, that attached to the top of the SR, blanked out the drag chute, for example. But it carried the tanks for gaseous hydrogen and liquid oxygen, and we had a tenth-scale model of one slice of a laser uh, mounted on a fin in in between the two tails. And the idea was we were going to do a seven-second burn to demonstrate for the first time in flight a laser actually ignited. So we had that done at the Skunk Works. At the time, the head of NASA was championing this better, faster, cheaper thing, you can't have all of them. That's right. And so they didn't use the the valves that were the latest and most expensive ones. So we had um, we got the airplane, and then it was leaking. You can identify oxygen leaks pretty easily. They have sensors that can do that. Mm-hmm. Hydrogen's tough because it's just a tiny atom, you know. And so we did a lot of work trying to get the leaks down, and we kind of succeeded in that, in the oxygen side. With the hydrogen, there were no sensors to do that. And we went through many safety boards. We had people on the boards, or not on the board, but you talk to people about rockets, and they come from Huntsville, and they're used to something goes wrong, they blow it up or something. <laughs> and they, I, one guy said to me once when we were debating something about this, and uh, he said, well, what's the big deal, you know? At the worst case, it can be just a small hydrogen fire. I said, I don't think those two words go together. Plus, we're 20 <laughs> feet ahead of where that That's fire right. is, and you can't just press a button. So it, ultimately, the safety board, uh, the director retired, and uh, he might have had a different view. The crew was convinced that it was the risk was not great for seven-second burn and so on, of having simultaneous leaks right together. Yeah. Well, we never got clearance, so we failed. That's the only time we ever failed in a project. Oh, wow. We failed in the laser. Yeah, didn't fly it. We had a whole episode on the SR-71 with Brian Shaw, who actually passed away recently. Yes. And he was quick to 
give credit to Kelly Johnson and the team and all the folks that made that aircraft happen. But he liked to relate it, as I recall, to like a 57 Chevy. And it's just pure and, and plain and not a lot of thrill or frills, maybe. But I want to ask you, when it was starting to come back, now we are here what, in the 90s, I believe. Was there an urge, or maybe there was an actual effort to, well, we can upgrade the cockpit, or we can fill in these leaks, or we can change the fuel, because I think the JP, was it seven, eight, eight mm-hmm. was uh, a challenge. So when it came back, were there people that were championing that, or was it just, no, take it as it is, because it's too much money to try to do anything else? Yeah, well, they, they did go through the business of changing the flight controls to digital. Okay. Not just the flight controls, but then inlet controls. And... And that was a big effort. He just recently passed away, and when I asked the SR people, I never met him, but they look at me and say he was a great storyteller. But on um, YouTube, there's um, an 18-minute video called uh, The Insane Engineering of the SR-71. It's animated. It's terrific. It's really well done. But you think of that engine, how it functions, you would not think of 57 shells. Yeah. It, it is an amazing accomplishment to be a turbo ramjet, and that's the spike moved 26 inches. Mm-hmm. You know, and yes, that's 26 inches in an environment where the temperatures were like 600 degrees, or and the impact temperatures. That's what kept, you know, that's what limited the speed yeah. was temperature. So nowadays we have new materials. So when you talk about doing some things at high speed. You have materials that can, it's not easy, but yeah. it's not outlandish with the materials we have. But the SR, that's why it had titanium structure. Right. Because at 3.2 Mach, aluminum would melt. Yeah. And they had to invent the tooling to make the aircraft oh, yeah. out of all that. That's, you know they have a, one of those engines at the San Diego Air and Space? No, I, I think I heard that. Yeah, it's yeah. downstairs. Uh, our videographer, Kevin, over here, and I got a chance to see it when we were talking to them about the episode that we did with them. So but, it was know, neat. It was huge. Yeah, and uh, I mean, uh, the fuel is a coolant. It goes through the whole airplane. Mm-hmm. So I I don't think that's a good description of it. But it it functioned. It didn't have a lot of... There were some problems. We had one that, that we had an emergency at Oshkosh, uh, refueling over the lake that I was involved in. The nozzles were pressure. The pressure in the nozzle, the medium that was in it wasn't hydraulic fluid. It was fuel. So what happened was one of the lines, there was a small little pump that changed it to 3,000 PSI. And one of that got out of balance, and it cracked the small line that went to the nozzle. Oh, gosh. So then it was spewing fuel out the nozzle. And we were very close to uh, coming back to Edwards. We were over the lake, and I had told one of our guys that was taking F-18 there to be on static display, why don't you fly with us, you know, give you something to do as well. Mm-hmm. And it was good that he did because it was a tanker from Edwards. They knew us. But the tanker guy kept saying, you know, there's, some, there's a lot of stuff coming out your left exhaust. And we were getting clearances. The guy in the back was talking to clearances. And we were going to fly by supersonic, you know, high up. But we were going to transition right over Oshkosh. And so then I said, come on, why don't you come over this side and have a look? Tell me what you see. Mm-hmm. So he got over there and he said, boy, there's a lot of a lot of something coming out of the <laughs> left nozzle. It was fuel that was pouring. If we'd lit the afterburner, I'm sure bad things would have happened. Uh-huh. So we declared an emergency and had to dump 60,000 pounds of gas. 
Oops. over the lake. And then we, we landed, and I'm talking, at the back seater was going, oh, don't shut the engine down. And I'm saying, well, the checklist says, and I said, okay, we're going to shut it down at 15,000 feet coming down. So we did. So we're straight in, shut it on one engine. And then I, I said to the tower, the chase is going to land in front of us and clear the runway. You know, so is this in Oshkosh? You're landing there? No, no, we're okay. we're landing in Milwaukee. Sorry. All right, all right. So we declared an emergency and we went into Milwaukee. Okay. And so he said, "I don't know what you said, but you're clear to do anything you want." <laughs> <laughs> so, so we did that and we landed okay. All but right. uh, the tanker also landed and our crew chief was in there. And they, after we got out of the suits, they opened the panel and this line was broken at both ends yeah. now so we were lucky that it but didn't. if you just land in a place that's not expecting you like milwaukee you're dressed like an astronaut can you get yourself out of that no. or you just, you just yeah, sit in it until help. until someone comes to help well, you? well the back seater had the pins we further we have to pin the gear before we shut the engine down oh that, that's just in case it's there's some protocol it's wow. protocol yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the checklist so he had the pins so he had to get out and the fireman had a ladder off the back end <laughs> so i'm watching him but the first thing he has to do is get out of his suit then he's in his long underwear, and so the long underwear is modified so it takes care of all that you need to take with mm-hmm. you, and, and that you can imagine that you have a little bottle in your leg and how it gets there. But so I'm looking at him and he's getting out of the suit. The lady happened to be helping him, and the garden reserve is there, so they were a great help. Good. So he, he gets his suit off. Now he's holding the pins in one hand. He's holding his underwear across <laughs> the hole in the front. And and he's walking, and there's a puddle of fuel around the airplane. Ooh. And he's in his stocking feet, and I'm looking at him. I wonder how he's going to do this. Well, he went back and got his boots on, but he had to trump through this gas and put that in. So that was the amusing <laughs> side of what could have been a disaster. Well, and I appreciate that you just summarized it that way because one of the things I sometimes ask my guests is, you know, this business is very serious, but it, there's a lot of opportunity for some really great humor. Oh yeah, it's it's yeah. I don't paradoxical that's, to me, but it, I'm glad it yeah. is because old Dana knew that. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's right. That Never quote, take yourself. That, that's a good quote. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, and I think I don't know if it's just a coping mechanism for the things that we do, or maybe a defense mechanism in some cases. But oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. firemen. So when you were flying the SR seventy one, was that all you were flying, or are you flying almost everything? No, I, I was flying other things. Okay. Yeah. And it, you didn't find that difficult to keep straight what you're doing today or tomorrow? I mean, by that point, you have a lot of experience. But Yeah, but we, we were, there was a limit to what you, you didn't. Sure. Two things. We used checklists, and we made our own checklist, like of a big complex one to get on and off the ground maybe. But we used checklists. We right. didn't depend on memory or anything sure. otherwise, which was because you can't, if you're going to go fly you know, three or four airplanes, you, you need to not miss something. All right. So that that was uh, they've monitored that, but that's that was your job. Yeah. You know? Checklists are great because you don't skip a step like taking the gust lock off the flight controls. But yeah. also, I have to think right with enough experience, you can sense things right. I don't know, seat of the pants, sixth sense. I don't know what you want to call it, but right. Is, is, does the airplane talk to you a little bit too? I would think when you. Well, I think in general, you look around more than you think. Mm-hmm. I've been in an F-16 and has hydraulic cages here where I was flying with the Air Force and dropped a bomb as part of a joint program. And as I turned final, as I turned to come to initial, I saw the one gauge was at zero. And you, you look around a lot more, but 
You've got to be disciplined, though. Yeah. yeah. It probably didn't register every time you looked at it. It was what you expected to see, but maybe that, you subconsciously that, that looked. That happens and, a lot. Yeah, and all of a sudden you one You think needles, you see it, and it's yeah, not there. Yeah, true, yeah, so. and vice versa. Wow. I want to ask you about the X-29, because that's just, again, I had a picture of it on my wall, and uh, it just seemed crazy, but I guess, what, I don't know, tell me what you can about why and how and Well, the X-29, like. we had, there were two demonstrators built, Okay, and there were X-31, there were two demonstrators built. So the X-29, Grumman and Long Island, they flew the first four flights, last two of which were, I think, at Edwards. Then we took over as for DARPA, Defense Events Research Project Agency, does all the way out stuff for the Defense Department. Mm -hmm. They have agents, and in this case, NASA was an agent, and they took on the flight safety responsibility on behalf of DARPA and ran that. So we started flying the airplane. So lots of amusing stories here. I just digress in one. The chief test pilot was flying it. Now, the business about controlling your ego, there are a lot of cases where chief test pilots never figured that out. Likely that was the case here. But So he, I was a chase in a 104. You know. We chased all the, the data flight, all the test flights. So I knew he was finishing his tests. So I wanted to get out of there because I didn't want to be on the runway when he was coming in or have him delay. So I leave when the other chase is coming. So I get out of there and I'm, I land and I'm, I park the airplane and I'm walking in and there's an Air Force colonel that walking towards me and greets me. He says, did you see the roll? And I said, the what? No, I didn't see anything. Why? What happened was the pilot, the test pilot, whose name I won't repeat now, he did a f- really a flawless, very efficient test points. And he finished those, and you can imagine there, this is third airplane of this, third flight of this very unusual airplane. So the control room has got 20 people in it that are all looking at screens and whatnot, and he does a roll. He doesn't Just say a word. An aileron roll. An aileron roll. Okay. Well, that's not been cleared. Mm-hmm. This is not in the envelope. But you can imagine what the heart failure in the control room. They think there's some uncommanded, right. something is broken, and there goes a roll. Right. And so that's what he did, and he was removed from the program by the Air Force. Wow. Yeah. And then the number two guy, who was a close friend of mine, took over, and he flew with us for the next couple of years. But uh, it had a lot of technologies in it. It just didn't – it had an aeroelastically tailored wing. I mean, the Germans built – a forward swept wing in the Second World War. But you can imagine, and I'm holding my hands up on purpose, mm-hmm. that as you increase angle of attack, the angle of the flow to the airplane and therefore the lift, what's going to happen to the wings? They're going to bend. And what's happening to the angle of attack locally? It's getting bigger. So it's going to bend more. There's a point you will reach where it's divergent. You have to put a lot of extra strength in the structure. So that, that offset some advantages and so on. Okay. So they could aeroelastically tailor the wing. It was built, and they could make the um, curvature of the wing such that they could delay that divergence. So that had never been done. So first of all, it was an aeroelastic. It was a composite wing. Uh, lots of manufacturing problems that hadn't been solved because this was brand new. You have to always translate your back. Then it had, um, most importantly, it was statically unstable. If the airplane didn't have the flight control system, 
which was four channels, or three and three digital and one analog, four channels redundancy, that airplane would, at 250 knots, would likely break in half because it's 0.12 seconds to double amplitude. Would double its amplitude, that's how divergent it was, every 0.12 seconds. So that was really unusual. And then it it had um, canard in front that was in a different position and so on. So there were about four or five technologies that were new in that airplane. So it was my opportunity to be involved with a brand new airplane. This was four flights before we got involved in it. And then we were doing systematic checking and uh, increasing the speed. And they invented in the control room. They had all the information. We could do a frequency sweep in the airplane. That's moving the stick maybe plus or minus an inch, let's say, at really low, slow, and then faster and faster and faster and faster. That gives a variety of frequencies. In one minute, the control room had the answer of what the margins in the closed loop of that system, what margins remained. We were allowed to operate at half the margins that an operational aircraft would. But we could see as we got up near transonic speeds, the slope was going to go down to zero. But we could see it before got it. Before you got So there. we stopped and they made some changes in the control system. They had invented that system because before they flew the airplane, they had some data from beams buckling beams, not airplanes. So there were a lot of technologies that had to be approached systematically and carefully. Then at the end game, you asked uh, before as we were talking, say, well, why weren't there more airplanes built like that? Because it reduced the maneuvering drag. You have a consequence of getting lift as you have angle of attack. As you increase it, you have corresponding increases in drag. So as you maneuver, as you turn, you're increasing the, the lift. You also increase the drag. So the idea was that forward swept wing uh, at the higher speeds uh, would be advantageous in minimizing, not eliminating, but minimizing sure. that drag. And I think it largely did that. But we do the same things now with leading edge, leading flaps, mm-hmm. trailing flaps that are controlled by a computer that is putting, therefore, the, the camber of the wing in the proper camber so that we can get the minimum drag. So it, you can do it other ways. Yeah. Was the X-29, though, intended to just study that phenomena of yes. forward swept? So they never thought, we're going to build four, and then maybe we'll build 400 no. later? Okay. It, it was a technology demonstrator, gotcha. as was the X-31. And there's a lot of merit. We're talking about Kelly Johnson, and his motto was test early and often. So you need to test. You don't need to test everything. We got we get smarter every day with sure. AI and uh, artificial intelligence and so on. Not to get too confident. Billy's paper, and I won't go through it all, that he gave recently. Billy Flynn, yeah. Yeah, it was a case where a tester, the leader, wanted certain test points done, and people were saying, oh, we don't need to do that. We never go there. Blah, blah, blah. And they did it, and had they not done it and not seen what they did on an absolutely uh, – Three Sigma day on the on the water. Water was absolutely without a ripple. They were over an ocean that was smooth. They were over the Gulf of Mexico. Okay, it was absolutely smooth. Wow, six hundred knots at a hundred feet. The radar F sixteen block sixty. Okay, the radar reflections were not there. There was no. There's no waves or waves, ripples or yeah. wow. And so they they had um, basically some 
extraneous or didn't have the appropriate information, and had they not grasped that things were not right and not done that point, they might have, 100 feet, gone into the water. Wow. Thanks. That's the business. There's always a gray area. Mm -hmm. Somebody once said about unknown unknowns. (laughs) It changes in size, and the, the confidence now needs to be controlled. Yeah, we have artificial intelligence that can mm-hmm. do marvelous things, but are you absolutely sure? You know, we don't have to do as many test points, maybe, but yeah. have to do some. Because you're doing things that you never did before, yeah. because you have new materials. and So there's still, testers need to be flexible. They can't be bureaucratic like we always did this. Like my time, I spent three and a half years on the Eurofighter as, as a consultant on flight controls where people were saying, no, this is the way we do the VNV, the verification validation. Yeah, that's the way you did it five years ago. Now it's changed. I'm not an expert at it. And the people in charge, in this case the MOD in UK, said, no, that's the way it's in the contract. It has to be done. I said, yeah, but it takes nine months instead of three. Well, it matters. Yeah. It does matter. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. Is it changing because technology is changing? Sure. Or, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but uh, the people that look at cost and schedule, mm-hmm. it's important. Yeah, absolutely. It is. But they tend to lean on that and say we don't have to do certain things. Well, you have to be really careful. And that's where you have to ask sure. your, your subject matter experts. Yeah. And they didn't come from Harvard Business School. <laughs> Raj, let's go to 2000 now in our okay. little journey back in time. You have retired earlier from the Air National Guard after 20, I think you said four Four. years. Uh, You're spending, I think, what, 18 at NASA, and you quote-unquote retire, but you don't really, right? Uh, What do you do after that? After that, I, uh, because of my X-31 connections, I guess, experience, they asked me to come over to the Eurofighter in uh, Germans. It's a four-nation thing. So the Germans were responsible for flight control design. So I went as a consultant to the flight joint team, it was called, Four Nations. That's Britain, Spain, Germany, and Italy, which is unique, all different cultures. So I was allowed to go to the ops meetings of all the pilots and so on. But it was uh, challenging for lots of reasons, different cultures. When I first went there, I flew the simulator, and it was early on. They hadn't finished at all, but they said, what do you think? And I said, do you want me to tell you what I actually think? Yeah. 
Yes. Can I interrupt? Is this yep. a simulator like I, as a regular pilot, might go get in? Because you have yes. fancy. No, no. It was a. Okay. It was a simulator of the okay. Eurofighter Sorry. as it stood at that okay. time, so the display wasn't. But there totally are. Correct me if I'm wrong. Right, fancy like engineering style oh, yeah. simulators it's are super very, close. Very um, okay. Sorry. exotic. Didn't simulator. mean to interrupt the story. No, no, it's fine. All right. So they asked you. So what I, you thought? they asked me, and I said, <laughs> I think it's uh, like an agile Airbus. Mm-hmm. Oh, ouch! Not a fighter. I mean, its response characteristics mm-hmm. was flew very well, but it's not a fight. It doesn't have the response rates and so on. So they were like, not too happy with that. But I'm not putting myself to say that I changed it all. But during the time I was there, we were gradually special teams, multinational, to work on specific problems and use the airplanes as we could best use them as as I used to, and Billy used it in his talk, actually, um, I didn't, somebody else said it and I remembered it, but I used to tell him, we can put those fillets on the leading edge of the wings here on the real airplane, on the prototype, we have seven of them, and we can fly it up to the conditions in the restricted airspace, in already cleared airspace. Mm-hmm. Now we can do the tests in God's wind tunnel. It's got a perfect visibility. It's got perfect feeling, all the G-forces, all the, all the <laughs> rates, they're all right. Yeah. There's no question about that. But they too much stuck in their ways. They wanted to go to the wind tunnel. It would take six months to go to the wind tunnel. Oh, gosh. They could use the real airplane as a wind tunnel. So some enlightened people, uh, Kelly Johnson is way, way ahead of his time, was aware that a small group of talented people that were somewhat relieved of all the bureaucratic structure of the big company mm-hmm. could do great things rapidly. When you think of it, 59, the design of the A11, A12, whatever you want, the first version, three years later it flew. Three years. Nowadays, you might be talking about ten times that. Yeah. Now, it's more complicated, but still, that's the basis of doing developments rapidly. Do you take more risk? Well, you shouldn't take ridiculous risks, but you you like to do what you're taking it incrementally. So that's, ask me what I do now, that's what I preach, yeah. <laughs> you used your uh, expertise to uh, probably mentor and counsel or talk, or you, you've gone on the circuit I, a little bit, yeah? I try to do that. I did, yeah. for example, with Billy, um, is affiliated with, part of, he's vice president, he says he isn't, but he's head of technical development for the International Test Pilot School in Canada, in London, Ontario. So they had a major meeting for the Society of Flight Test Engineers in January. So he said he arranged it for me, but that's all right. I was the luncheon speaker, and the theme was, what's the future of testing? Well, that's a very broad thing, but fundamentally it would be that Technology is changing more rapidly than we can imagine. But the people, now they're somewhat replaced with AI in some situations, but the people and how they lead or how they work together as teams is still there. They still have to work together and be effective. So they have to learn how to do that or at least control their ego and build bridges. That's bottom line. There you go. Well, and you also did a stint as the president, right, of the Society of Experimental Test Pilots? Yeah. ZP? 96, a long time ago. Okay. I was the president, yeah. You still go. Billy was the president. So Canada is, uh, people from Canada 
are have been presidents of that society way out of proportion to the populations. Huh. So. Now, speaking of Canada, aren't you also a member of the Canadian Aviation Hall of Fame? I am, yes. Yeah, 2017. Wow, that's fantastic. So a uh, man that we knew that was a Canadian test pilot who's now like 94, I guess, lives in Vancouver. He's the one that spearheaded that, and he's spearheaded trying yes. to get Billy in. Previously, the Hall of Fame was in northern Saskatchewan somewhere, okay. way up north. Typically, you had it was only what you did in Canada, so it was all like bush pilots and so on. <laughs> he got it extended to include whatever you've done internationally. Oh, so, All right, Rogers. I have some questions here I want to ask you from our listeners, but before we do, I just had an epiphany. I want to see how many fighters I can get through, at least in America, and it's going to be a lightning round. You just tell me yes or no when I say it. Are you ready? Okay. So I don't think there's an F1, 2, or 3, although we could debate maybe F1s. But uh, So you said F4, so we're going to say yes. F5? Yes. yes. Yeah. I'm talking now actually piloting the aircraft. You don't have to be alone, but you did have to, like, control the aircraft. Yeah. All right. F8? Yes. Yeah. Uh, F- By myself, yes. Oh, really? No, All right. a digital uh, first airplane to fly with a digital flight control system oh, wow. was an F-8. Okay. Digital fly-by-wire at NASA. When I first got to NASA, it was on its last project, and uh, I got to be the, one of the pilots on it. Wow. So uh, just a quick one. I went right with my chief pilot uh-huh. before my first flight. It had to be alone. And he said, I want you to look at the tail here. Do you see the ventral fin there? Do you see how far it is from the ground? It's about this far from the ground. <laughs> said, don't ever forget that picture, and don't ever flare this airplane. So that's why they had the wing that went up. The angle of incidence changed, as I understand. Yes. One of the only. Yeah. All right, let's see. Where did I leave off? F-8. Eight. I can't think of anything between that and the F-14? F-14, I flew by myself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with a Rio, I'm guessing. Nope. Or nobody in the backseat? No. No, it's because we had the test airplane from... Grumman's test airplane okay. came out to Dryden when they needed to do special oh, tests. Wow. And they had one with a digital fly-by-wire, the first version of that. They also they had some problem with the wing sweep. They had one that was asymmetric. So they would bring them out, and usually they'd operate out of Dryden. So now they had this t- special test airplane. I forgot the number of it, but it's the one they used all the time, but the back seat was full of instrumentation. Oh, wow. So so I'd ask my guys that flew it all the time out there when it was out there, I'd say, when we climb out at 250 knots, we can pull full back stick. How fast can you pull it back? They always did that as a routine. You pull full back stick, the airplane, this huge airplane, goes like this, (laughs) and then it goes back down. So they would say, oh, fast as you want. How long can I keep it there? As long as you want. Now they're all sort of casual about it. (laughs) But... Anyway, I did by myself. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I know you flew the F-15, and we didn't barely even get to scratch the surface on that. Definitely the 16. I guess probably not the – well, you tell me. Why F-17? I did the the simulations of oh, wow. it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. F-18? The F-18, is a, I have like 1,100 hours on oh, wow. F-18. So now I'm going to sidebar the conversation a, yeah. a moment. You talked earlier about thrust vectoring, and there were some aircraft, F-18, F-16, that had some thrust vectoring right. test. And I guess I want to ask the rookie question, which is, why can't I just, for example, now with the Super Hornet, you know, if I'm the Navy, why can't I just come to you or Boeing? Hey, I want thrust vectoring. 
Well, theoretically it could because people solved various ways of doing it. In the X-31, it was with external paddles, Mm -hmm. but later on they did the whole nozzle. Right. So you could do the nozzle round, so Pratt & Whitney had that. So that the technology is, and on the F-16, that's what they put on. So they could do that. Really? Does it just come down to money? Oh, sure. Well, it's a lot of development. Yeah. Now, the F-22 has pitch. That's why the F-22 can go to really large angles of attack. Yeah, yeah. Because the aerodynamics have gone when you're that slow. You don't have enough aerodynamic control. But with thrust vectoring, that's why the SR-71 could fly stabilized at 70 degrees angle of attack. Wow. And, you know, from the fighter pilot point of view, we did all the X-31 the graduation exercise for the X-31, first of all, there were only two people that flew the X-31 with us. And we flew 1v1 with an F-18 with a centerline tank. That was a standard that we flew against. We only had two people, because this is air-to-air inside, like, 500-foot bubbles. Okay. So inside, we had only a couple of people could fly the F-18. They were all checked out in the F-18. But that wasn't a thing. You came in in the morning and said, I want to all take that seat. <laughs> so we only have that we restricted that. Ed Schneider and one other person was Freddie Knox from uh, the other, from the contractor was, could fly the X-31. But we flew against every fighter, F-14, F-15, F-16, 1v1, with orchestrated to the extent we started one at 250 knots, mm-hmm. line abreast. Mm-hmm. Another one was 350 knots line of breast. So I, I just regress to say, I can tell you the story of one day that I died, but I didn't. But I know how many of my friends died. So I'm with my buddy who's in the F-18. I'm in the X-31. So we're, it doesn't matter what speed we were at at that particular time, but our job was to air to air to see who's got the advantage. So thrust vectoring is a great advantage at low speed, but it goes back to the basics that I said, aggression and patience. It's a different equation with thrust vectoring. So you can do some phenomenal maneuvers with thrust vectoring. You could go up and turn around and so on, but your opponent is going to be watching you do this and clapping, but you're up there as a constant target and he's shooting you down. Uh So just like any air-to-air thing, you have to drive the fight. And so he has to be responding to you. Mm. You do some fancy maneuvering with thrust vectoring, you're going to die. But if you use it to drive the fight, and I had to tell my uh, very talented young German guy who came to be the pilot from the German side, and after he lost, which I enjoyed because I beat him in the F-18, I told him the secret. Do not make independent thrust vectoring moves because huge drag penalties. Mm. But... We would always have the fight at the end when we'd win. We'd always win with these guys. But you'd be in the center going down like a rock, Mm -hmm. both of you. But he is going around in a circle, and you're in the center of the circle now just yawing around with him with a pipper on him just pointing at him because you can do it with the thrust vectoring. So we've had, you know, admirals and so watch that. What the hell is the matter with that guy? Why doesn't he take it up? He has no energy left. He's just pulling around the corner, and he's dead. So the, when I died, though, was I was a lot of time in air-to-air, Ed not so much. But you never thought of this situation quite. But I want to win, you know. So we take it up 
45 degrees or something, initially, right away. But I take it up and into him because I'm going to roll across him. Mm-hmm. And I say, because I'm anticipating it, I have the high. I'm high. Right. I got it. You can't come high. <laughs> so I got it, and I started rolling knowing I've got the high, and I've got him because now he's got to – he can't keep coming, but he did. Because it's a little confusing when you think of it. Change the whole perspective to here, 45 degrees up, what's high? It could be a little confusing wasn't to me in, in there, but I'm, now I'm crossing. I got a crossing angle because I want it, but he's still coming. Now, if, if I was really calculating, I'd say, I need to push. We both need to push. But that's totally an unnatural action. So now the crossing angles are such that the closure rate is enormous suddenly, and you can't do anything about it. You're saying, holy shit, we're going to hit. And so I'm upside down, and I actually crunched down in the cockpit and said, Here no, it comes. Yeah, this is it. And so he went by, and we went by close enough that I could feel the bump of him, of his airflow. Mm-hmm. He could feel mine. But we went with me having the advantage a little bit so our tails were not crossing. Anyway, we had an ACMI range there, effectively with our radar. So we, that data went back to Germany, and it was digested there. And so about three weeks later, one of the Germans, we, they were with us all the time, came to me and said, you know, and we, we, we acknowledged that we screwed up, you know, and we talked about it on the ground. We didn't hide it or anything. Right. And he reviewed the, the calls we're going to make and so on. And he said, do you know how, fa- how close you came? I said, no, 25 feet. That's, that's what's happened to a lot of my friends, and especially in F-86 days. They had mid-airs, and you go, how the hell did that happen? Well, once you, once you get inside, that's why Maverick captures the rates. And if they get beyond a certain point, it's too fast. You can't do anything about it. So we didn't broadcast that story, but it, we didn't hide it either. Yeah. But that was a lucky day for me. It sounds yeah. like it. Golly. So, anyway. All right. Uh, let's see. We were uh, F-18 for sure. You said 1,100 hours. How about F-20? No. Okay. No. F-22? No, but I knew about it. I was on. It was, or, I was yeah, okay. Uh, I was on F-35 teams. Thirty-five was much later. All right, let's see. I got to jump way up into the numbers. What comes? Uh, F eighty-six clearly. Yeah. Uh, F one hundred. You said yes. Yes. One hundred one. Yes. One hundred two. No. One hundred four. Yes, a lot of time. Okay, well, and you got it on your hat there. I think. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, one hundred five. No, but I first saw one hundred five in um, Bitburg. Germany when I was in the Canadian Air Force. Okay. Took a four ship in. The, the leader was like 19 years old <laughs> at that time. So we we had these, sometimes the paint jobs, the camouflage got a little raggedy. So we came in, and anyway, I would short, shorten it up. I'm talking to the Air Force people. I was on 105 on the ramp around the corner. And I said, come on, can I go down and see the 105? And he finally says, sure, yeah, I can arrange that. We can do that. What the hell do you want to see it for? You're flying the last of the sports cars. And that's not a sports car, but it's a huge airplane. Yeah. No, but I never flew it, no. Okay. No. Uh, 106? Yes. 117? No. Okay. Uh, let's see. Is that it for the Fs? How about A's for fun? A4? Yes. A6? No. A7? I think they had a two-seat uh, A7 once. TF or TA7. Uh, I don't know. Maybe yeah. I did once. But right, it's you like have to check the logbook. Uh, how about A10? No. Hmm, okay. Uh, let's see what else is there in the A's, but... 
You've definitely flown a lot. Of, have you ever like tried to count how many different aircraft? No. <laughs> well, I have. I sort of estimate eighty types that I've flown. 80, yeah. But at NASA, we had a a great rule that if we assigned two people to a project. Like mm-hmm. the one hundred six was there because we towed it from a C one forty one on a big tow line. An F one hundred six. A one hundred six. You towed. Yeah, but we're demonstrating <laughs> the concept because people are talking about towing rockets up and lighting them up, you know, okay. and saving the gas because they tow them up. But when they're finished the program, then all the people in the office, if it's possible, that's how the 114 happened. They get a flight. So that's how I got the 106 and the, 101, okay. the F-14. All right. Because we had the early model, uh, earliest F-14, and starting it was some sort of magic process. And I remember that... Uh, Something didn't work, and I'm saying it. It's not engaging or whatever. And a voice came over, push on something else that seemingly had nothing to do with the starting. <laughs> push on that one. And I did, and it oh worked. Yeah. I know we talked about the X-29, X-31. Any other X-jets that we didn't cover? Well, the 22 is an X-22. X-22? Yeah. Okay. The interesting thing for me to go, not to philosophize too much here, but say as you get older, you start to be a has-been so the line, you want to draw the line so you're not always telling people what you've done, and that's not my purpose. Okay. But quite often in conversations, they come along and say something about an airplane or whatever. They don't even know that I was involved in it. And I say, well, you know, I did that or we did that, and this was a learn. Not trying to tell them what I did, but you have to be careful of that. Mm-hmm. And so now you want to still be relevant. That's a key sure. word as you get older, to be relevant not artificially relevant, but uh, doing consulting, like I mentioned, uh, you know, doing that as a luncheon talk. I've never done a luncheon talk. So I put in a few more videos and so on. That, But I went to MIT four months, five months ago, I guess. They have a flight test operation at Hanscom Field. They do really advanced technology, electronics. They tell me that Eisenhower started that. We have companies, we have organizations that do work like Hanscom Field, like MIT, that are funded through the DOD in some way. They don't have to follow the DOD uh, bureaucracy or the policies and so on, but they are a special not-for-profit group. That means people that really care about the technology and not the stock options, that's not their driving Mm -hmm. force, have a place to work where they can do their skills. So I went there because they one of their departments is the flight test for the other departments. Sometimes they want to take things into flight. And I was trying to figure out, I go there and do it. I just talk to people one-on-one, uh, just a reporter, if you like. And I was asking them, trying to get an idea what they do, mostly carry things on board that you think you need to get airborne. Yeah, but turns out that they have large antennas that they put on the sides of airplanes you know, 19 feet long. So that gets into all sorts of flutter and all manner of stuff. So they have the full gamut of it. And they do, and I was not privy to exactly what they do, but they do the farthest out development that you can imagine that people get the benefit of. So it's nice to talk to that kind of, yeah. that, and it's nice to see a very good organization. Yeah. 
Rogers, I want to pivot to this segment uh, where the folks that support the show financially on a service called Patreon, they get to know that I'm sitting down with you and I say, check out his bio. He's all over the web. You can uh, learn what he's done and what he's flown. And we just took a journey through that. And so they pose these questions that I like to pose them to you. The first is from Joe Kunzler. It's regarding the X-29. Why do you think Ford swept wings aren't more popular? Yeah, we kind of touched on that it, because they can do it other ways now. Okay. With um, advanced trailing wings. edge flaps, you know, we you even said. did a not on that, but we did a mission adaptive wing. They actually flexed the um, composite surface oh, wow. with the appropriate structures inside to change the camber. So they can do it quite effectively with trailing and leading edge devices. Speaking of that, we typically stick with military aviation, but as an airline pilot, I always wondered why someone hasn't come up with winglets, which they all love now, that can go down when they don't benefit anymore. And I think I'm starting to see that. I forget what airplane it was. It might be a new Airbus or something. Put the winglet up. I think it's what best for climbs and descents and not when you're cruising. Or yeah, something there's like that. a certain time it's not. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, moving on. Mike Soldow, who's right here in San Diego, says, were you the lucky pilot that flew the last ever SR-71 flight that Saturday in 1999 at the Edwards Open House? Yes. Yes. And I, I wasn't expected to be the last flight. We hadn't flown it for a while the SR for a month or so or okay. a couple of months. And so uh, myself and the, one of our backseaters got to fly on Saturday. So we went overhead at 3.2 Mach, and you can let people see you by dumping fuel. Now, some of my Air Force buddies would tell me that when they went by in the early days, they went by Murmansk and up. Obviously, they never went closer than 12 miles. Yeah, uh, Of course. <laughs> the fields up there, the airfields, are only operational in the summertime. So in the springtime, they'd start flying, and they would sometimes dump fuel to just let tease them, them, say. Let them know they're there? They wanted us, they could see us and say, <laughs> you can't touch us. Yeah. The reason it was the last flight was because the SR, in its, it doesn't have fuel bladders in it. It has fuel cavities that they seal in the wing and the fuselage. So when they heat up, you know, they heat the structure up and they cool it off, heat it up, cool it off, eventually they get more brittle and they get more cracks. And the first time I flew out of Palmdale, I can see it now, the crew chief came in. By the way, he had a raincoat on because the airplane leaks on the ground because of all these cracks. It's very, not very volatile. You could have a collector on the ground, you throw a match, you can't right. light. So he said, it's pretty good. When I went out to the airplane, I'm looking. There was one stream that went from the airplane, almost a steady stream to the ground, not drops. So it leaks all the time. It leaks in flight, if you see the famous one that we gave to the public, over the, the Sierras. You can see all the lines, but it's fuel. They're fuel lines. So anyway, we, we hadn't flown for a while, and the next day the other crew were going to fly, and they were already out in the trailer getting suited up. They got suited up. And I went out with one of the engineers in a truck, and we stopped. somebody stopped us and said, they, we got a really bad leak. It was a real gusher they were having. And in the air show schedule, they couldn't get to it in time, so we lost the slot, then it okay. couldn't do it. But if they could have seen, if, only if they could assure themselves that it was just coming from a crack, we would have gone. Okay. Did that crew worse. think they were going to be the last yes. flight? Okay. Well, I don't know that we knew it was going <laughs> oh, to be okay. the last flight, right. but 
yeah, for me, then I worried for a day and a half because at the end of it, we did three flybys. That's not our habit pattern. And if you were lighter, lighter on fuel now because we've been up to 75, 80,000 feet, and you come by and now you've got, I used to tell people in the various guard organizations we do flybys, do not hear the roar of the crowd because they're like 300,000, 350,000 people there. Wow. So you come by in an SR now and you light the burners at those weights. First of all, when you light the burners, the low fuel pressure light comes on because it can't handle the surge. And the acceleration, you realize the SR is 500 knots max speed. 500 keys up there, it's going like 450 keys equivalent airspeed to equivalent on sea level. But that's not very fast by our standards. Hmm. So, but you go from like 250 knots or 275 to 450, just like you can't get it back fast <laughs> enough. And then I wanted to also pull up to slow down. Right. And I, I worried that I pulled up because it's also not the G levels that are allowable at at speed is 1.75 Gs. Oh, that's not much. But down low, it gets up more like two and a half, maybe three, at special conditions. Okay. So I worried that I had over it, you know. <laughs> but it turns out I didn't. It was just uh, that unfortunate leak that caused mm. the problem. <laughs> and then they shut the program down because yeah. uh, wow. we couldn't get that clearance to fire the laser. Here's a fun one from Niels Hansen. Are you more proud of what we have achieved in aviation over your lifetime or more excited about what lies ahead? Yeah, that's kind of tough. I'm, I'll tell you one thing that I use all the time in talks, especially in schools. We did that at NASA. I'd say, anybody here know the first line of David Copperfield? And, of course, maybe one person in my lifetime knew that. The first line of David Copperfield applies. <laughs> I know not whether I shall be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by someone else. The point being to be a hero of your own life is not telling other people what you've done. It's nothing about boasting. It's about inside you. Have you, maybe you haven't done everything, but have you worked? So back to your original question, what did I want to be? I wanted to be a pilot and an engineer and the pilot side, a test pilot. Why? Because I love my uncle, not because I'd ever had any experience in flying. So I can honestly say, inside here, I'm really happy. Outside, I still want to participate. I'm excited by things that I hear and see, and I want not to be somebody that's up there boasting about what they do. The good old days. The good old days. <laughs> so... That's a long-winded yeah. answer to that. Well, I wish I'd have saved that one for last. That was a good one. Yeah. John Clark, what message would you give Kelly Johnson and other aircraft designers to make their products better and safer? Did you ever meet Kelly Johnson? I, I never met Kelly Johnson. I met uh, Ben Rich a couple of times. In fact, one time I thought he was the entertainer at the hotel where the SCTP was <laughs> because he, I was in a group, and he came along, and he was in a, they have a president's dinner for sponsors and select few from SETP. They're all in tuxedos. And I was with, fairly new at NASA, and I was with guys that had flown the SR. 
on the previous time at NASA. So he leaves, and, and I go, who was that? You didn't know that <laughs> was Ben Rich? And can you tell me who Ben Rich is? Because I should know, but don't. He is always referred to being the inlet man. Okay. And he was, now, Pratt & Whitney and others, don't get me wrong, it wasn't all Lockheed, but that that was a real breakthrough, the inlet okay. for everybody, including the Russians. I've been, I was either Tupolev or Anatov. You know, we didn't talk about, I got to fly seven flights in Russia. That question's coming up next. Oh, okay. So <laughs> anyway, I was there when, after the, the wall had come down, they were cleared at Edwards, and he's walking around the SR. This is a designer, and he's looking. If you look at the leading edge of an SR, it's sort of ethereal. It's, it's a shapely thing. It's not, you expect it to be, you know, hewed out of stainless steel or something. So he was jabbering nonstop to his interpreter, but I think the gist of it was he couldn't believe this, the shape of this airplane and so on, but he'd, you know, he'd obviously heard a lot about it. Yeah. But I would not give any advice to Kelly Johnson slash the skunk work of his days. Okay. I would advise all the other people to go study how he did it. He ran the place, but he realized that to do development rapidly, you need to test early and often, but you need a select group freed up from, if there is a bureaucracy right. and a structure that you have to follow. Collateral which, duties, Or maybe. the HR department. Mm-hmm. First thing I would do if you ever put me in charge of a large corporation, I would talk and say, HR, you need to understand one thing. You work for all these other people here. <laughs> they do not work for you. <laughs> you follow what they – go get them what they need. Mm-hmm. But too often it gets around yeah. the other way. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no, nobody's good. asked me to do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, not too late. Jevin says, when you flew Russian aircraft, and we didn't cover that in the uh, no, no, in your was, bio, no, was, but when you did, and you can talk about this, in what ways did you get to push the envelope in them, and what did you learn in doing so? So give us a little background first. You had a chance to go over for sure, a number of months. Yeah. So what people at NASA had wanted to do is, first of all, the wall came down, and there was some interchange between uh, the Air Force and other military people, possibly. And so Edwards was clear to have people fly uh, certain things. But NASA wanted to have an exchange. They wanted to particularly understand how do you do high angle of attack testing? What methods do you use? Because we had both, to some extent, the X-29, but largely the X-31. How do you do that? So NASA headquarters tried for some time to set up some kind of exchange. And it never evolved. And my director, Ken Saleh, is a great man, great leader. I was fortunate to work with, for him for most of the time I was there. He retired from NASA, started a company with a lady that was very, very – worked with Armin Hammer in importing lots of raw materials, maybe like the titanium that's used in the SR-71, came from Russia, yeah. So he got in this company. They're making ejection seats because the Russians, when we talked to them and told them when they came the other part of the exchange and said, you know, they're going to fly an F-16, the seat is only good up to whatever it is, some number, not the full envelope of the airplane. And he said, wait, that's a number one 
rule in our seats all have to cover the total envelope of the airplane. So anyway, he talked to this lady, and uh, she took about two weeks to set up this exchange because she knows everybody in Russia. And when later on they took the T-144 and put different engines on it, put newer engines, she was involved in setting that up. One of the things she did was took all the money that was to exchange. She took it and wrapped in newspaper with her to give directly to somebody (laughs) because if they sent it over there, it would never get... It wouldn't find its way to the right place. So then the funny part of the story is we had selected one of our pilots that was going to go on this. We were waiting for to see what's going to happen. It comes, the date, we're going to leave in two weeks or something like that. And he, meantime, has had an operation on his foot for a wart or something and got infected. So he's limping around the office. And I said, you can't go on this thing with limping. You can hardly walk. So we need to delay it. So I passed that on. We need to delay three weeks. And yet, can't be done. And so then I looked around the office. Nobody ever believes there was no one else that could go except me. (laughs) And then I said, well, I don't have a visa. And she came back and said, okay, you're not going Friday. You're going to fly on Saturday. You'll have the visa on your desk on Friday afternoon, which guy came and gave me my (laughs) visa. So I went over there, and uh, I flew the Su-27 like twice, uh, uh, MiG-29 maybe three times, MiG-25 once, L-39 once. And so we asked, we wanted to look at high angle attack, and we wanted airplanes to be recently inspected. The big inspections finished, and there wasn't, in the time I flew, I flew seven flights in 10 days and uh, never saw a light. And I flew in the front seat in every airplane. Never saw a light? Uh, no, a warning light. Nothing oh, ever okay. went wrong right. in the whole time. But you have to understand, and you could talk forever about this one, we worked out of Gromov. Gromov is a research institute. Okay. It's right next to Sagi, which is where all the wind tunnels they have a huge wind tunnel complex. And it's out at Ramenskoye, just outside Moscow. That's where they developed all the MiG and Sukhoi. They all have mm-hmm. um, places there. So the Gromov Institute is like NASA. The toilets didn't work. The lights were half of them worked. It was a shambles. The floors hadn't been cleaned and looked like three years or whatever. But the airplanes and the MiG-25 I flew was the same one that chased the Buran. It had been outside, I think, every day since then. It was looking like an airplane that had been outside for <laughs> months, <paint>. years. <laughs> wow. um, and also you sit in a different cockpit. They have another cockpit put on, so you're separated from the, his cockpit. Mm. You're up in the front. You're not, so it's even more tricky to be in that. So we, and we, I work with a man that um, Anatoly Quacher, his name was. If you've ever seen the picture of, I, got, I think, a MiG-29 crashing at the Paris Air Show. Mm-hmm. So he departed the airplane, and you see the airplane just entering the mud as he's landing, not very far away. Yeah. That's Anatoly. He's, he's a great pilot. and So you could talk forever about it, but we wanted to see high angle attack. So they modified the MiG-29 back to the original state that you could get out of flat spins. Otherwise, they have an angle of attack limiter. 
and the Gromov people were very disparaging of the Russian Air Force that one had 26 degrees and one 29, I forget which was which, but they were just saying, we don't need a limiter, and you didn't, because you could see everything that was happening in a little yaw, you can put on a little rudder. So they had written out exactly what we could see and showed us everything. So we would, like MiG-29, you'd say, um, let's assume that the sun is a target over there. Okay, now I'm doing the flying. I had to ask him to, we did it like eight spins in one flight, and I had to say, wait, can we stop for a minute? And, <laughs> but looking at a high angle of attack, the limiters are off. Now we can fly with no limiters because we're flying at Gromov. And we say we're going, and you just look over at the sun and turn, roll, and pull as hard as you can. We're going up to, I don't know, 65 degrees angle of attack, maybe a little yawing in the nose, but nothing, no departure. So that's the kind of flying we were doing. Su-27 is, a, I think, a 14 huge airplane. Yeah. And when we first took off, first day, it was about 1,500 feet overcast. First day we were going to fly. I got suited up. I had partial pressure suit. You know, and Russian. The lady that was giving me gave me a Russian jacket. Looked at my U.S. winter jacket. Said, "Nyet, take it off." Wasn't good enough for the cold. We were anyway. Um, he asked me, "Can his son was about 13, was there, and they didn't fly very much this time. Uh, they were previous, uh, you know, in the years before, they flew hundreds of thousands of hours in a month. Can I take it for a minute? Because he did air shows to make money. They, they made money at air shows. They got only one quarter of their budget that they traditionally got. Oh. They flew transports in with, for money. And I said, sure, you can have the airplane. So we did an air show in the, in the SU, right at 300 feet or so. Really impressive. And afterwards, chief engineer said, is that okay with you? I said, sure, I'm not going to be doing that. <laughs> but it was very impressive. So the, the airplanes were all impressive. And the SU was, it's a huge airplane. So yeah, it so does everything slowly so you can really encounter it. And the MiG-25, we, I think before, was, I went to 68,000 feet in a zoom. So I, I'm going, well, what's the min speed we can go to? Mm, oh, you got to tell me a min speed that we're going to go on the zoom. And we did. We zoomed up, and I, I don't know, 250 knots maybe or 220 or something was min speed and pushed over. And I didn't fly with Anatolia in the MiG. I flew with a young man who spoke perfect English. His father had been a test pilot and died in a crash. But the next morning I came in and this young fellow says, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I didn't run on ice. I'm going, what? It was a good flight. It was a very interesting mm-hmm. flight. Because we came down and did a loop, a 10,000-foot loop in the MiG-25. You have two hands on a stick. The forces are so heavy. So what he said was we had permission to spin down from 50,000 feet to roll out at you know 10 or above and then do the loop. I said, are you kidding me? We we're going to spin the... MiG-25? He said, yeah, we had permission to do it, and I forgot it. That's a quick way to get down. And so anyway, they treated us very well, and uh, I said at the end of my talk once on the Russian experience, if I was going to war, I'd like them on my side because they know the fundamentals. If we asked anybody to write out the equations of motion of an airplane, just give them a sheet of paper, one of those engineers could write it out and look in a book because they didn't have computers. Now, when they came to our base, that's what they marveled at. You have so much. And we even had instruments that measure angular acceleration. 
They said they've been working for five years on that. But he said something at the end. He said, maybe sometimes you can have too much and you forget that you need to know the basics yeah. or at least be familiar with them. Yeah. yeah. All right. Last question is from Jim Gundog. What are the benefits of unmanned or remote piloted aircraft in the test arena? Now, before we get to that, though, everything we've talked about so far was you in the cockpit, generally speaking, a lot of different aircraft. In your quote-unquote retirement, have you been dabbling in unmanned or? No, I was a test pilot at Grey Butte for the MQ-9 oh. for the last 11 years. I'm not flying anymore there because I'm working for the Air Force. So, yes, I was a, a line pilot and, a, well, a test pilot and the, and the contract, I'm sorry, contract director for that work because it's still going on. I was there yesterday. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because <laughs> I go there every once in a while. I still get the safety thing. I still get some hours to do some safety consulting with them. But you know, the answer is yes, and I have experience with Joby. For example, they can fly their airplane remotely first, easily, without all the paperwork of putting a man in it. And people can, when you have that flexibility, it, it's it's very worthwhile. It's very worthwhile. I, when I first went to the MQ-9, I said, why don't you put a... There's room. You don't need the KU antenna in the front. You could put a pilot in there, and that means you could make some changes and fly because it's hard to fly in national airspace. It's much more paper-heavy to fly in the national airspace remotely. At Greybutte, we fly to Edwards, restricted area, to do all the testing. And there is a special uh, notum, permanent notum, about the track we're going to fly up there. Sure. So you can take advantage of flying remotely in some cases. So to Jim's question, it's nice that you on these risky maybe first flights can do them without a pilot. Is that That's possible. We're, we've much more experience in, in yeah. building uh, autopilots and so on. Yeah. And, you, you know, the airlines being a, a case in point, you know, mm-hmm. how many uh, decade we could take off from – some airport you could actually take off, maybe put it at the end of the runway, I don't know, but to fly the whole flight and land. Not today. I mean, you can do much more than that. But there's a lot of ego gets into the business of, certainly with the Test Pilot Society even, with whether people that are doing testing, like structural testing or flight control testing or any kind of testing in a remotely piloted vehicle are not somehow not qualified. No, I think there should be qualified pilots, but people that do that, pilots that do that work, should get credit when they do the testing because they're following the same principles. In fact, the MQ-9 tests under the authority of Edwards. So when we have a test plan, it has to be approved by Edwards. But that's happening more and more that people, sometimes people want to take advantage of those things to do it better, faster, cheaper. Sure. Uh, so for good reasons, when you have good reasons, you can um, be flexible that yeah. way and use technology appropriately. Yeah. Well, and Jim's question is a good segue into sort of tying this all up, which is you've seen over your decades of experience a lot of changes, I presume, in the way things are tested. What do you see? And you're still involved, right? So what, what do you see the future for the testing of whether it's aircraft, manned or unmanned, or maybe even NASA based on your experiences there, but uh, w- with what you've done, what do you see the future for those different parts well, of Well, I life? think, uh, I believe the challenges for leadership, uh, I mean, it's a challenge for everybody that's working. Everybody can be a leader at some time sure. every day. Right. 
But the challenges for upper management leadership is uh, greater than it has ever been. And that's because, uh, yeah, we have new technology, but it's uh, some of it's more complicated. If you think about the F-35, I won't share any credit for that, although I was involved when they first were doing the proposals, and I was stunned for the Air Force on a panel that visited when they said they were going to have an active stick and an active throttle. I go, are you, are you serious? You're going to build a new airplane and you're going to – active stick means you can change the force displacement relationship or the dynamics of the fuel system online according to the, uh, where you are in the flight envelope. And an, an act of the throttle the same way, but it has to be sufficiently redundant to be reliable. And they said, no, that's what we're putting in. We're going to go with that. Well, they also now, because of technology, they can use a scheme that they do use called dynamic inversion. Basically, it means you have a pretty good idea from um, various new technologies of what the characteristics of this vehicle will look like, what the equations of motion will be for the airplane itself, and you also have some desire what it should be for various things. You think of the, the B model, it's got to land vertically, for example. Mm-hmm. And so how can we do that? Well, dynamic inversion requires you to know the, the model for the airplane, the matrices that describe the control system and the model, and then you cancel it out internally in the system, and you put in the matrices that you want. You couldn't do that. You didn't have the capacity. You can do that on the airplane. Now, I don't know whether you do it every instant of time. I don't know the specifics. I do know one of the short courses that I was teaching at the National Test Pilot School that I'm proud to report is that one of the men that was involved at the Skunk Works was for some reason on this course. I don't know why, but he was. the great tall fellow. And I, I was standing on the stage, and he came in and sat down, and he said, are you you're Roger Smith? Are you? Uh, we have a criterion that we developed at CalSpan, Cornell Aero Lab, called the Neil Smith Criterion. In the early days of fly-by-wire, it was how you could look at somebody designs an airplane. You can look at it and see whether it would be, from a fighter point of view, a good airplane or not. It was pretty important because they were, in those days, very complex. So anyway, he asked me that, and I said, yes. He said, let me shake your hand. So I presume that maybe it's digitized now. You can run the digital computer. Mm-hmm. They might have used that. I'm just saying might. <laughs> so okay. anyway, go ahead. All Sorry. Right. No, that's okay. We're just no. talking about the future of all this. What about no, the future? I, yeah. future for you? Are you still going to be keeping at it? You've been at it for a long time. I'm not trying to call you old. No, no, don't <laughs> do that. But uh, No, I am old, but my wife worries about me being old, but... Most other people don't know how old I am, but Billy does. He can tell you. Okay. So I'm older than Billy. I'm uh, 22 years older than Billy. That's why I always refer to him as my I'm, – I'm the mentor. I started when he was young. But, no, I like to be involved because of the same reasons before. I have a passion for it. And it's not ego-driven essentially. But what I talk about now are, are the intangibles more than the, the details like we can do – you know, fly-by-wire dynamic conversion. We were going to put that on the F-18. It had never flown just about the time I was leaving NASA. We were going to put it on an F-18 because we had an F-18. We had access to a computer. But it now flies in an operational aircraft. So that's just the beginning. But I'd like to um, 
be involved with trying to teach about teamwork and leadership. Okay. And it's it's few leaders that ask for that kind of feedback. Some people do. I worked with Boeing in 2011-12, Dennis O'Donohue. He hired me to maybe three or four days a month or a week a month I worked for a couple of years. I went to six or seven of their detachments or like Pax River. I went to Pax River. Okay. I went to Seattle twice. When I learned how to do what I do, which is just talk to – if you bring me into the organization, I wanna, I'll want to. i list the people I want to talk to if I know them or the what they do. And I said at Boeing, I want to talk to a mechanic like the 787 was in test. They said, why do you want to do that? Well, I want to understand how you work. So I ended up talking to the head of the union, and I learned a lot. I said, if you believe that what you write down, that this company believes safety is number one, they don't believe it. That's important. You've got to get them to believe it by demonstrating it. No kidding. There's nothing to do with the – this was 2011. Sure. Yeah, so. Do you still fly? No. No desire, no urge, no I, same thing. But no, I don't. Okay. I, I would certainly fly with anybody, but I truly believe in being proficient. Okay. You need to be proficient. So if you're with somebody, if you're not, then when the unexpected happens, right. are you going to have excess workload capacity? <laughs> not likely. Yeah. So there are lots of stories about that, but sure. lots of examples in airplanes with yeah. that when people jump on the stick and do something like, driving a stewardess up over the end of the ceiling and, you know, they killed a couple of people yeah. over the Pacific and they could have just put their hands on their head for a while. Like the A330 that crashed in the Atlantic. Yeah. If they'd put their hands on their head mm-hmm. for a minute, looked around, they wouldn't have hit the Atlantic at 10,000 feet a minute. Yeah, instead of holding 40 full degrees. aft the whole time. Yeah, practically speaking, yeah. full aft the whole time. Yeah. Well, I talked to the A350 now has alternate airspeed. I'm not taking credit for that, but I talked to the at one right after that happened at a meeting that I was talking at, and the chief pilot for Boeing said, I think you're telling us we didn't design the autopilot right. We didn't have to turn off the autopilot. You know, they did in the A330. Right. As soon as they got the miscompare in airspeed, right. you didn't have to do that. I said, that's right. didn't have to. And why would you ever take out the angle attack limiter, which they did, because it dropped it down one level mm. in the autopilot. But I still like to preach, as you can see. Yeah. So answer is yes, I like to be involved. Okay. But I, ha- I have a choice now. You know, I can work where I w- if I want to. Okay. Know, so. Well, I have a scenario, and it's going to take some buildup, so bear with me. So you say you don't fly because you're not able to maintain the proficiency. So I want you to imagine, Rogers, that you can either flip a switch or take a couple weeks, whatever magic, you know, a little check mark. But then you walk out, let's say, here at Gillespie Field, where we're uh, using the studio at the Circle Air Group, uh, FBO, and there's every aircraft you've ever flown. All right. And you can, like I said, you can flip a switch in your mind and you can say, all right, I'm going to get in that one because I just want to go goof around and cloud surf for an hour. What airplane are you walking towards? Well, it's either the F-16 or the F-18. Really? You know, the F-16, because of the cockpit and the visibility you have, you're really out on the end of an arm. Oh, yeah. And you don't have anything in front of you. The airplane's really part of you. F-18, because it's, uh, to me, and uh, what I've found is a very honest airplane that can do most everything. And um, I have a lot of time in it. Great. 
Well, we always finish with call signs. Now, you allowed me to just call you Raj. I think we can figure it out where that came from. Was there anything else ever that uh, people I only you? had one in the guard. I, okay. Well, I had a guard commander who's uh, still a good friend of mine, a very great leader, but he had a nickname for everybody, and he used to call me Nipple Neck because <laughs> I, I had a protruding mole on my neck, which okay. I immediately had removed. After he coined that yes, right. phrase on you? So that went away. <laughs> so they called me Rouge because I'm from Canada. They claimed that extension of Raj. I see. I didn't have. Some of the nicknames people have are amazing. Uh, You like to hear the stories of how they got them. Well, we had an episode dedicated to call signs, but according to the guest who was on that show, it's gotten a bit more political now. You have to, like, get approved to have call signs because it gets, you know, it's... Well, they have some of them that are... Yeah, they're a little childish. Yeah. Yeah. Salacious. But when I was in the Guard, you know, the the Air Force was not allowed to have call signs. Really? The Navy had call signs, but the Air Force couldn't. Even the call signs for the airplane, they wouldn't, you know, you go down to Tyndall and we'd have our own Rhino one, two, three, four or something. No, you can't do that. You got to wear your scarf while you're flying. You know, Ascot? Ascot. And so my squadron commander cut up, you know, the uh, colored paper you put on for parties on the tabletop. <laughs> one morning he cut, cut all that up in strips and we all came into the briefing with our. Our little ascots. ascots. They didn't appreciate the oh humor. Boy, I bet. Man. Well, like I said earlier, humor is a big part of this career, I feel like. you got to do it. Well, Rogers, you've been a good sport, and I've been chasing you for a while to get an interview. Thank you very well, much. Well, I thank you. You're all over Europe, and you got a place up in Mammoth, right? So yes, yes, we do. There a lot. Do you ever get up there? Uh, my family was just up there for Memorial Day. There was still snow. I oh, was yeah. not able to go. I was flying, but I love it up there. I'd, I'd like to take my fly rod up and come visit. Yeah, you Smith, you know that name. So I think it's in the phone book. <laughs> well, you've got my cell phone. That's it. So yeah, please. This episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the Circle Air Group FBO on Gillespie Field in El Cajon, California. Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation themed videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com and for exclusive content check out our Patreon page thanks for listening thanks to our title sponsor National University National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel and military families through flexible online courses and masters and doctoral programs in high demand fields providing excellent career advancement opportunity National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.